As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. All right, welcome back, or welcome to what is normally Friday story time, but I, uh, I appreciate our guest today, Chris Whitfield, uh, working with me a little bit on scheduling. Uh, we move this up to Thursday evening, and who knows? Maybe this will be uh, maybe this will be well attended, better attended than normal, and we'll, uh, this will end up being a thing. So, regardless, um, thank you. Whether you are uh, joining us live here on Facebook, whether you are listening on the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast feed, uh, welcome to the uh, Friday Story Time segment. As I mentioned earlier, this week's guest, reigning NHRA Division Five Super Gas Champion. Um, it's it's funny because I, I I feel funny talking about your racing career as a career because what are you you're in your early thirties I just hit thirty yeah yeah I'm okay thirty one now so that doesn't feel long enough to be a career but it's been illustrious right I mean you you're very very accomplished on a number of different levels and even with that in mind I think it's fair to say and I believe that you've even said publicly that you feel like twenty nineteen was your your best season to date and um, and rightfully so like I know. Just to hit the high points, it started with what was a twenty thousand dollar victory at uh, at Tucson, double up at the divisional at your home track at Bandemir, ten thousand dollar win at Grand Junction, and then close out the season by winning the the Division Five championship. I guess we'll start there. In your mind, what was the highlight of twenty nineteen? I think looking back, I'm going to give it to that Super Gas Division Championship. Um, just in my own mind, I put so much stress and so much effort into that. And there was so much travel that went into it to achieve that, that it just seemed like the amount of work that we put into it, that was the biggest reward that we could have gotten out of the season. Um, and I think back to, um, not to say that I would have rather been in other places, but you know, we had tickets to go to, uh, the spring fling in Bristol. And I would have been in the King of Flings race. I mean, that would have been like the coolest race to be at. But instead, we had to go to Great Bend, Kansas um, and contest a, a divisional there, which almost like 
I don't want to talk down on the NHRA stuff, but it seems like a no-brainer. Like we're going to race for five hundred thousand dollars at the Bristol Fling. Um, but instead, Great we have to race. a tourist attraction, though, right? Uh, yeah, there's an airstrip <laughs> right next to you. There's a couple of restaurants. I mean, yeah, there's something there to see. Um, but then that was also the continuation of the Earlville Divisional that had gotten rained out. So we were still going into, I think, fourth round of Super Gas that was going to be contested in Great Bend. Um, and then looking at the Jigs All-Star points and um, the divisional points, it was like, that's, that's a two for one. Like, it's a no-brainer. We're already this far in. We were leading All-Stars. I think we were leading the division at that point, too. So it's like, I guess we have Bristol tickets for sale. And Mr. Jeff Rigney was the beneficiary there. I'm glad he got to experience that. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of good things that came out of that. But um, just all of that that went into that super gas division championship, um, I think is, is the high point for me. Um, and it, it's, it's a chance to put your name in the record books. I mean, everyone's going to remember who won the fling and in these big bracket races all the same, but when you accomplish something in the NHRA, I think there's a certain prestige that comes with that, or at least in my mind, there's a certain prestige that comes with that. Um, so, you know, I say all this and then for the first race of the year this year, I, Granted, I didn't think we would be racing, so I sort of held back a little bit. Um, but I didn't even get my my five one numbers ordered for the Roadster, um, so I ended up shoe polishing in the number five one onto my hood scoop for the first race. Um, you would think I would get home from the last race in Vegas, rip off my number, and get it ready for the five one, but I was rocking the shoe polish for the first race out. Um, so you know, whatever. I've got the numbers now. We're going to be okay when we go racing. I'm uh, I'm curious. Because for those that, that aren't aware, and I know everyone in, in your area and probably even across Division 5, as wide a landscape as Division 5 is, is aware on some level of your previous success. But when I say multi-time track champion at Bandemir, I mean, it's like in the double digits, right? Yeah, so the number's 17. 17 um, track championships? Yeah, and those are super pro, super gas, super calm. Um, right. We've kind of got like our top dragster class that goes into that. Like it's it's all really competitive classes. Like I'm, I'm proud to say that these championships weren't like little gimmick sort of things that, uh, that are easily written off. So just to give some perspective on that, like um, we are racing good competition on the mountain. Um, the classes that we race in, there's, there's similar caliber, caliber drivers, there's similar caliber equipment. So, um, you know, when you say 17, it's like, yeah, well, something had to come easy there. Um, you know, I feel like I have good ground to stand on to say that I had to go through some really good racers to get there, some really good equipment. And then you throw in the variables of the racetrack itself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy to go running around telling everyone, I got 17, I got 17. Um, but, you know, if, if that's um, a topic of conversation, you know, I, I feel like there's definitely some good ground to stand on there. I'll say it for you. 17 time track champion. And he just said he's 30. <laughs> Right. So what's the, the, the year that you accumulated the most? Like how many track championships in one year is your top? I think it was 2000. It might've been 2014 or 2015 that I got four in one year. Um, it started out as like one, one, then I got two, then I got three, then I got four. And then I got, uh, I went back down to two and then I kind of held steady at two for a couple of years. And now we're back down to one. Um, just because we aren't chasing it locally sure. as hard as 
we have been with all the travel, it kind of, you start looking at the divisional schedule and how it lines up with the local stuff. And it's like, I, I don't have much of a choice as much as I'd love to be uh, continuing that at home, but you know, we got other mountains to climb to. The division five NHRA chase is probably as rigorous. I think it's, it's without question more travel than any division with the possible exception of division six. I know things get really spread out in the great Northwest as well, but you guys are going, I mean, the division five schedules literally stretches from Brainerd to Denver to Topeka. I mean, you're, you're nothing is close to one another. And especially from where you're at, right. The, the, just the geographical issue is probably the biggest. I'm curious with all of the success at home, like, was it, did you come into 2019 saying, okay, this is the year that we're going to do something or did it start with double it in Denver and like, oh, we need to keep going. And one thing led to another, you know, it, it 100% started at Denver for the divisional. Like we went to Vegas at the very beginning of the year to a divisional, literally to test and tune for the spring fling. So like I burned a race testing and tuning because I was going bracket racing. Um, and then the way that it worked out, was after the the double it in Denver it's like well we had some money from a bracket race right before that that 20k at Chris Forsyth's race it's like well we got some money and we're in the points now so I guess we're going to spend all of our bracket racing money on super race like we've got the funding to go do this otherwise the amount of resources that you have to pour into this the, the days of travel uh the fuel just everything that goes into it like we almost had to start with a pot sit there and, and draw for them all year long and we were fortunate enough to win that bracket race at the beginning of the year which kind of bankrolled all of the NHRA stuff for the rest of the year because you know even at the, the uh, Topeka Divisional the double out there I win a lot of rounds in super gas and and I like to think that I won my championship that weekend right there because I think I was fifth or sixth round both days but we lost our butts money-wise on that deal I mean we didn't make a dollar on it but we got the points and without, like I said, the bankroll at the beginning and, and a little bit more with the Grand Junction race to kind of feed us and get us along, it's really tough to justify going that far for these sort of races because especially when you start looking at Jake's All-Stars, the way we do it is you get your, you have six division races and you have to claim your best five. So you're going, like we didn't go to Brainerd, that's just a stupid drive from here. I think it's, I don't know, 18 hours or something like that. So the next best thing or the next worst thing maybe was Earlville, Iowa. And I think most of the cars that we're racing out there are like division three because we're so far east. Um, but that's a 16 hour tow. And it killed me because looking at that race, it was rain like Thursday through Sunday. I mean, the whole thing was rain. And, and it's you're like, committed we're going at that out point. there to get rained out. We're not even going get to get to go racing. Well, lo and behold, we got a few rounds in on race day and that was the whole point of going is that if we get a few rounds in, well, it's going to get rescheduled to something else. And then that's how we end up at great Bend with a continuation of an Earlville race. Um, none of it was in the plans. Absolutely none of it. And then looking back even more, we could have taken more advantage of it because we didn't really have our eyes on the national schedule at all because none of it was in the plans. Um, I feel like if I would have gotten a shot at, three or four more nationals that there could pretty conceivably be a single digit number on the side of the car this year. Um, I think I claimed two, two nationals or, or maybe three. Um, and then we even intended to go to the Vegas fall race 
the national, but I think we got snowed in um, and we literally could not get the rig out of the mud in the backyard. So like Vegas was out. So then why even go to Pomona? Um, you know, we, we could have done a little bit better of a job in that regard. Um, I, I'm not saying I would have taken a shot at the world title. I would have had to have won a couple races to do that. Um, but given the opportunity for a single digit, um, probably should have gone to a couple other races for sure. Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, hindsight's 2020 20, and from your location, like it's difficult to make that plan. It's difficult. Hell, do I love, I love NHRA racing. Like I just, the, the, the there's a lot of things about it. I know it gets a, a, a lot of people knock it and rightfully so. I was one of those people for years where I'm at in life right now. Like it makes a lot of sense. And while there is a lot of, I always tell everybody, there's a lot of BS that goes along with the, the NHRA format. But once you put the helmet on, it's way more fun than, than going bracket racing. I mean, there's just more variables. But with that said, to your point, it's difficult for me to financially justify making eight division races. And I can make eight division races without going more than like six or seven hours from home. You know, so I, 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 I feel your pain. I mean, when you, when you say I'm driving 16 hours to Earlville, Iowa to run a race that's, you know, three grand to win for points meet, like I'm cringing. I get it, right? Mm -hmm. So first off, congratulations on just your whole body of work as, as a whole, and then specifically the 2019 season. So we focused on the, the, the highlights, right? What was the most difficult point in 2019 for you? I think it might have been like I can't point to one specific race. Actually, 2018 or 2018 was an absolute nightmare across the board. I mean, we had parts breakage, we had everything. So when I think of tough times, I think we we almost earned our championship back in 2018 with all the work that went into everything. Um, the toughest part about 2019 was kind of the backstory because in June I had gotten married, and a month before that. I had bought a house. So those two things happened back to back. And then I pretty much hit the road till November. Um, so the whole time I'm out on the road, I almost feel guilty because I, I owe it to my wife to have somewhat of a traditional uh, first year of marriage. And all I'm doing is asking her to take care of the house and, and take care of the dogs and all the stuff that like I should be there for. Um, so it's kind of like, a, an emotional struggle or like a mental strain to justify all the time that we were putting into the racing like even if we weren't on the road traveling we were probably either working on cars or getting the rig ready to go on a trip um, and then as far as like just buying our first house you know when you get into a new house you want to make it your own you want to paint the walls your colors um, to be honest like the previous owner and maybe even the owner before them of this house didn't do anything I mean, everything was overgrown. Everything was dying. It's like, this house doesn't represent who I am. Like, I see the potential in it, but I need the time to make it my own. Um, and I never really got to do that. And that wasn't exactly fair to my wife or, you know, like, I, I just felt like I should have been at home the whole time we were out. Um, but given the choice to go racing, we're going to go racing. So that's kind of where we're at, where we were at there. And that's where like this whole shutdown thing has kind of been a blessing. Like it's, it's the break that I never would have given myself um, to do these sort of things. So I've been able to spend a lot of time with my wife, um, kind of make up for lost time. I've got 10 different projects going on at the house. Um, I never thought I'd be a carpenter. I'm out there building a giant planter box for my wife to put 
flowers in the front yard, like stuff like that, that, um, you know, just making the best of the worst. Um, that's sort of been the focus during this downtime. And, you know, I just kind of been sliding it in nice and soft that like, hey, hey, babe, when this is all over, like, you might not see me from about August through November because there are going to be some races and I am going to be at some of those. But for right now, I'm going to work my butt off and, and make the house what we want it to be and all that sort of thing. I, uh, I love the way that you uh, took us through that and articulated that because that struggle right there, I assume that that resonates with more people than you, you'd think. Like, I, I think you're able to explain it better than most. It definitely resonates with me. And the one thing that I will say is um, that guilt, like that's, that's, that's real. And just wait, when, when you guys have little ones, like that, that guilt gets magnified. It, it's harder yet. Um, I'm pushing that off. I'm pushing. Our dog, we have two dogs. That's bad enough. Like <laughs> one of them broke their leg a couple weeks ago, which is the worst thing in the world, right? And it's like, we want to go racing in a couple weeks. And now I have to get over that mental hurdle that I'm leaving my wife alone with a dog with a broken leg. It's like, I should be here to watch her too. But, and then I'm like, she kept saying, man, when we have kids and they break a leg, it's going to be even more expensive. I'm like, whoa, I don't even know if I want a kid anymore. Like, can we just, we can stick with the dogs. That's expensive enough. <laughs> That's an emotional attachment enough. Let's walk before we I'm run the kid. Whoa. I think I bought myself a few years with this whole thing, but like, yeah, hold on a second. We'll get there later. One of the, uh, the added bonuses from your 2019 season, and you'd, you'd mentioned it earlier, uh, you booked yourself a trip to the Jags All-Stars. This year's Jags All-Stars is probably more intriguing than ever. I mean, you were going to have to make a significant trip to get to Joliet, right? And, and the All-Stars is, is awesome, right? But to be able to combine that now and take it to Indy and essentially check off like two bucket list items for most racers, I mean, you, you get not only get to compete in the Jags All-Stars, you're at the big go. Like how, how fired up for you are that? How fired I, uh, up for that are you? Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I kind of had like an idea in the back of my mind because I had heard rumors that Joliet just flat out wasn't going to happen. So then you start running through all the things in your mind, like, are they just going to move All-Stars to next year? Are they going to move it somewhere else? What are they going to do? And I kind of thought to myself, you know what? The one, the one thing that could be better than Joliet is Indy. Like, if they moved All-Stars to Indy, that would be so badass. Like, that would be so cool. Um, and then, like you said, that's two bucket list items in one shot there. And uh, the, the D7 rep for Supergas All-Stars, Mike Boehner, he texted me and said, so are you going to make the trip to Indy? And I'm, the answer is like a no brainer. I'm like, how can I afford not to? And for him, it's a little bit harder to justify because he's even farther West. Um, but even in, even with that, like, how could you not? That's two bucket list items at once. And I'm going to take it for, for what it is. I'm going to enjoy the situation. Like it's going to be a dream come true in two different ways. Um, and I'm not like a history buff, so I don't know if Jigs All-Stars has any, ever been anywhere else, let alone Indy. Um, so I know that I'm going to get to experience something that very few or nobody else has ever gotten to experience. Um, and, and with that, I'll, I'll still have to go back to Indy to get the full Indy experience. And I hope that someday I'll go back to being an All-Star rep to where I get the full Joliet experience. Um, that way, you know, I'm getting to check off two, two 
boxes that maybe nobody else will ever get to do, but I still got to go back and, and check off the boxes like with the full Indy and the full Joliet experience if I'm lucky enough to do something like that. Um, but yeah, definitely Indy is, has got a big star on it on the calendar. Like that's going to be really, really, really cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's such a unique position because yes, obviously this is the first time it's been contested at Indy. I think it's safe to say it'll probably be the last, right? You're just extenuating circumstances. And I would assume, especially with Jake's involved, that you're going to get the same royal treatment that you'd be used to at Joliet, which is a really awesome experience. And then you just combine that with the I don't know, man. It's it, I. I didn't go to Indy for years because I thought, why on earth would you go to one race that takes a freaking week? You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm not messing with all that. And then uh, it was part of the K and N deal years ago. I, I was kind of committed to go. Uh, I was, I was dreading it. And then I got there, and I didn't do worth a damn. I think I lost second round in both cars, and I left there going, that was awesome. Like it's just majestic. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to explain until you're there. I love Indy. So, uh, and then to combine the two, like it's a, it's going to be a really cool experience. I'm excited for you. Yeah, um, it's a place I've only ever seen on TV, and I'm going to be surrounded by racers that I've only ever seen in magazines and on TV, or heard about on Facebook. Like legends are going to come to life in my world um i'm going to try to not be standing there looking around just totally starstruck at at the people that i'm surrounded by and and the things that we're going to be doing um but you know i'm just going to try to soak it all in make the best of it i i don't plan on going all that way just to lose i know the competition is going to be as good as anywhere else in the country on that weekend um but i i definitely do intend to make a little bit of noise and uh you know, if I go down, I'll, I'll go down swinging because I, like I said, I don't want to go all that way just to, you know, be the representative and, and that was the end of that. Like, we're going to make some noise while we're there. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. I have no doubt about that. What you're so good at, at, at articulating yourself. Like, I'd be interesting to, interested to hear your explanation. You are, a proven commodity like i i know i know the, the the folks in denver know like i i think you're as good a driver with as as well prepared equipment as you're going to find anywhere but you say and rightfully so like indy is its own animal man because it's you get people from all over to begin with and this year it's even going to be elevated because in addition to the people that normally are there you're going to have the eight best racers in the country basically you know from the previous year in the all-stars but i sense that do you feel when you go to that, I know you've, you've traveled to come to the million uh, and the Vegas million, things like that. Like, do you feel added pressure because simply because you get to perform on that stage? Not as often, you know what I mean? You have so many limited opportunities. Do you feel added pressure when you go to that, to that big stage, knowing that you're awesome, right? Like I, I think I, I, I'm, I trust that you have as much confidence in yourself as I have in you. But is that different just because you only get to do it a couple of times a year, you know? I, I kind of see it that way. Like this is, if this is a one-off experience for me, um, I understand the reality that if that's the case, I need to take it all in while I'm there and enjoy it for what it is and do my best while I'm there. Um, because like I said before, our intention was never to be here in the first place. It just sort of happened and we were thrust into this situation and now we're going to make the best of it. Um, and since our intentions aren't always to go out and run NHRA, um, 
I said, I need to make the best of the situation. And I think part of what adds the most, like the pressure comes from within, um, you know, I don't want to sound callous, but I could care less what um, my competitors think of me when they look over, oh, he's division five. He's not as good as division one or two or seven or whatever. Um, maybe that's just my own view of, of division five that we're like sometimes the the middle ground between the good racers on the west and the good racers on the east um but that's that's kind of how i go into it feeling like like we're a little bit the underdogs um and i don't know if that's right or wrong that's just my perception but um you know we're we're not on home turf here and we're going to be in in the sea level element which is when you go to division five you're going to tracks that literally from one end of the spectrum to the other so we have different setups going to every single racetrack, whereas I feel like some drivers, they get to go to sea level every single weekend and their setup is ready for sea level. Well, we're going to Indy. I don't even know what the what the altitude is there, but it's probably something that I don't usually race at. So it's the event itself is somewhat of a commodity for me as a racer and my race car setup-wise. So, you know... I don't know. It's going to be tough, but it'll be exciting. It's a new challenge. And it's, it's a challenge that I think division five races are used to because we go from one end of the spectrum to the other. It's another weekend. It's another racetrack. I'm going to take whatever I get in time trial one, time trial two. That's what I'm going to dial off of. And, you know, I'm not going to be saying, well, last week I was at this track and my car was running 990 all weekend and now it won't run 990. I don't ever run 990. I don't know if my car's running 990 or not we're, we're going to race with what we have. So that's going to be the mindset going in. All right. So to this point, we've spent a lot of time and rightfully so talking about basically 2019 and, and looking ahead. Let's dial back the clock a little bit. I know second generation racer. I know, um, I think I, I don't get the impression that many people make your father blush. I remember making your father blush because I was talking about you know, like how I read about him as a kid. Like your, your father was a, was a very accomplished racer in his own right. Take me back, like first memories at the track. And at what point did you know, like, Hey, this is something that I'm going to be doing, you know, for the rest of my life. I think, like you said, my father's been racing for, maybe going on almost 40 years now like he goes way back um so obviously he was pretty deep into it when i came along um i want to say some of my earliest memories at the racetrack were in an old off-white with orange stripe winnebago um it had the two bunks sitting on the side where i just kind of tucked away and that's where i stayed for the road trips and all that stuff um i can vaguely remember trips to douglas wyoming um you know I, we would get parked I would open up the window out of the bunk and I would see the two giant flags that they have on top of their scoreboards just whipping because if you've ever been to Douglas, you know that the wind never stops blowing there. So like that was one of my earliest memories of being at the racetrack. Um, I think my first trip to the racetrack, I was like three weeks old and we were going to a divisional in um, somewhere in Texas, I think Amarillo, Texas. Um, so like I was born into it. Um, and I think like, Mile High Nationals here at Bandemir was always like the biggest deal in the world to me. That was when the world came together at Bandemir Speedway. And I always wanted my dad to win that race so bad. Like there was, there was like rituals that we would go through. There was one year that like he started winning races and I had this water bottle. It was like kind of like this where it was like just had a little bit of water in it. And I, I like 
thought that if he just took a sip of the lucky water before each round, that he would win this race. So we're three days into this race. I'm like, Dad, take a sip of this water. And it's, it's just probably been festering and growing stuff in it throughout the weekend. But, like, I truly thought that this is the lucky water and we're going rounds, we're going to win this time. Um, and it never panned out. But, like, that was always the biggest deal in the world to me was watching my dad win Mile High Nationals. And now that he's kind of dialed back his racing to put everything that he has into my racing, um, I had to win Mile High Nationals for him. And we were lucky enough to do that. Um, and, like, that, that's kind of where everything came full circle from, like, I grew up as a kid waiting to be in a winner's circle picture at the Mile High Nationals. And I think it meant as much to him if not more to him that I was able to do it, that, you know, we just wanted to be in that winter circle. It, it was our time. It was, we'd put in all the work and everything. Um, and that's kind of when, like I said, everything came full circle and, you know, that was just the biggest deal in the world to us. And it felt so good. You went and did it again, right? You won that back to back years, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And we all cried like little girls the whole time. If you know, the Whitfields at the racetrack were like straight face, like put the sunglasses on, no emotion and then as soon as we win a national event we're crying and you know like the whole it's we're ugly crying and we're just the happiest people in the world but that's that's kind of how that all went down what um i take me through i guess a little bit more in regards of your history because i know you've got a pretty unique background obviously you've been around the sport forever it feels like you've been driving forever now um, and, and have a ton of accomplishments. You've spent time working. I mean, you, you've told me before, you, you worked basically every position at Vandermeer at some point, So you've, which I think provides unique perspective too. But like, just kind of take me through that progression and how did that all come about? Yeah, pretty much my whole entire life revolved around being at the drag strip the entire time. Like when it came time to get my first job, um, it just made sense that I would go to the racetrack and I would work there. And I think I was... 14 years old I started out in the ET booth because that was the easiest job in the world as long as you know how to unjam a printer or you know change the paper or whatever which I still screwed up a couple times and made some racers really mad that's just how it goes be nice to your ET booth people guys like they've got a it's not the easiest job in the world okay but um started out in the ET booth and um my boss was Larry Crisp a lot of people are familiar with Larry um he invented the drag rotator machines that you see on the NHRA tour that's where it all started was right there at Vandermeer Speedway. And I was there to see a lot of that come together. Um, the Traction Twins, Cody and Kale Crisp, I work hand in hand with them. We were really good friends for the seven years that I worked at the racetrack. Um, but yeah, I bounced around ET booth, um, water box, starting line. I ran the clocks, um, staging lanes. I mean, and then during the week, I was emptying trash cans, weed eating on the side of a mountain. I mean, I was on the mower. Pretty much if it needed to be done, I was up there doing it um, under the watchful eye of what I think is one of the best track managers in the world in Larry Crisp. What, what's the most stressful position at the racetrack? Um, being the starter for uh, the Western Conference Final Junior Dragster race. I bet. That is terrible. That is <laughs> like... Be nice to your ET booth people, but be really nice to the starters when there's junior dragster racers on the starting line. That's tough because there's so many situations that I couldn't even tell you what they are, but just situational awareness on running the starting line during a junior dragster race 
because not only are you watching kids, you're watching the parents, you're watching the parents on the sides, um, you're watching Downtrack, you've got two pairs of cars to watch Downtrack, and it's so easy to get crossed up because junior dragster racers will throw you a curveball when you're least expecting it. They'll roll through the beams, they'll go deep, a parent will run up and grab the car and pull it backwards or whatever. And when you're thinking about the stakes that people are racing for at the Western Conference Finals, one little slip up by the starter or anybody on the track crew, and you've got parents in your face, like letting you know how bad you just screwed up and how bad you just screwed over their kid. Um, so, and I think I was the starter for that for three or four years. Um, and it was, it was high stress. It, it felt good when the weekend was over and when the winners were crowned and everyone seemed happy. But the week-long process getting there, um, it, was, it was a journey. Yeah, I could imagine. That's an unenviable position to be sure. You've touched on this, at least in passing, um, in some of our past conversations. I, I think that the, just simply the perspective from having worked, whether it's the clock operator, the starter, various positions on the racetrack, gives a, a keen understanding of what those people are going through, obviously. But I thought it was interesting how you've kind of related that in, in, in past conversations to, no, that actually helps me as a, as a racer at, at times, just being a little bit more aware of what's going on around you. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, and I think a lot of that is, like I've probably logged hundreds, if not thousands of hours on the starting line itself, flipping the switch. So I know, situationally speaking, when the starter needs to flip the switch, at least with the CompuLink system, uh, as far as the other systems, I'm not, I'm a little more uncomfortable with those. And that puts a little bit of doubt into my mind because it's an unknown that if you don't fully understand it, you're not ready for the, the inner workings of it. Um, but just knowing how a starter is supposed to act based on the requirements of the system and when they act, um, it can really help and just, for one quick example, there was uh, a time run at the Phoenix Divisional last year where um, my opponent rolled through the beams, and I was staged. And I knew that if the starter was paying attention, that it would not like it would not occur where he would stop me and pull the other car back. Like in that situation, the starter is supposed to basically double switch, which makes the tree drop for the guy that's fully staged, and then he can stop the car that rolled through and back him up. Well, there's some starters that will run out in front of the car that's staged and tell them to stop and then get the other guy back or back both of them up or something like that. But in that situation, you're supposed to send the car that is, um, is fully staged and basically did their job. So I knew in that situation, I could go ahead and get on the training brake, get on the gas, and then do my, situ or do my, do my run as normal. Like the tree wasn't going to drop at some weird time while I was sitting there looking over at the starter wondering what he was going to do. The starter did his job correctly, and I knew how he was supposed to do his job. So situationally speaking, if you've been in both shoes and you have that understanding, it might help with that comfortability of what's going on. And then also in situations where, like, say the clocks are screwed up or whatever, I've been on that side of the fence too. I've screwed up the clocks. It's been a bad, bad, bad day. Um, but when you know what's going on up there, or at least have some sort of idea, you know how long you might be waiting. You know, you know. The operator's got to go through so many keystrokes, and you're not sitting there after 10 seconds, like getting mad, like what's going on right now. You know that if they're resetting the clocks, you're going to be there for about 30 seconds. So shut the car off, get comfortable, whatever. Um, if you know that side of it, you know the operator side of it, 
you're just a little bit more prepared and a little bit more comfortable with the situation as a whole to work through some of the curveballs that might be thrown your way. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. When you actually took the wheel, um, you know, I assume, what, 10, 15 years ago, or more than that, you started in junior dragsters at a time, right? I was eight, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Two years ago. Did success come immediately or no? So, actually, my very first race in a junior dragster, um, we have home video of this, and there's, so this is in 1998, so there's still mullets and tank tops and tight jeans and stuff going on. And, is, is that um, out of style now? It's coming back. <laughs> okay, I'm good. sure you've seen it. It's coming back. But um, We don't so have any choice. Got... I can't get a haircut. Like, I'm going to – if I could grow <laughs> enough hair to have a mullet, I would have a mullet. See, and I can't stand it, so I just wear a hat no matter what. But um, so we actually ha- have home video of my very first race, and I'm in a little stubby junior dragster. It's got Goodyear's on the back that are, like, rock solid. It's got the little donut front tires. I'm going, like, 1630s. Um, and the first person I ever raced was that was the past year's defending division five champion. That was when we had a, a junior dragster series that went with the divisionals. So I raced number five, one, my very first round of competition ever turn on a wind light, come back around. I raced number five, two, the next round, turn on a wind light. I went all the way to the finals, literally just stabbing the gas when I saw green and wind lights were just coming on. And I mean, you've never seen a crowd so so happy to see somebody turn on a wind light than my parents at the first ever race that I was at. Um, I think I ended up losing in the final, but just to get there was like way like I got a trophy. It was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and then like success through juniors was it was there, but not on a huge scale until 2002. I won the Western Conference Finals for that. Um, that's when there was like 500 cars that used to come out to Vandermeer Speedway. Like that was a really big deal. We were on ESPN two. Um, like that was really cool. Um, and then like the success wasn't quite what I wanted in juniors, but I, I guess I didn't really know how to make it better, how to get better, how to be better than the competition. It wasn't until I was 18, 19 years old that I started watching some of the best racers in the world on a divisional and national level doing things that I didn't understand. And I started to think like, they know something that I don't know. They understand something that I don't understand and I need to figure out what that is. And it wasn't until I sought out that information and really got a comprehensive understanding of the numbers of drag racing that I started seeing like a sustained rate of success and started seeing the kind of success that I like to have now. Um, so there was definitely a lull in the early years and even the first few years of big cars, it was really frustrating. It was kind of a time of finding myself like, you know, setting up 15 to 20 on the tree is not good enough. Um, and when that's what you've been taught your whole life is that 15 to 20 on the tree is good. Um, you've got to kind of reset your brain a little bit to, to know that like, if I'm not double O, it's not going to go my way half the time. And like I said, once I started kind of reinventing, listening to these other racers that I looked up to and admired and saw doing these things that I didn't understand, I got that understanding. And then that's when the success followed. I, I, I love listening to the way that you walk through that because that sounds very familiar in, in my history as well. I'm curious. I want to double click on it. Like, 
who were maybe some of the racers that you looked up to or would emulate at the time and is there any specific example as to like because i've got some like growing up watching scotty or nedman and jeff and jeremy heffler you know and like why the hell did they just do that and then you sit and think or you maybe you even get to go ask them, you're like oh you know and just the light bulb goes off like mm -hmm. anything like that that sticks out to you um gary stinnett will forever and always be a legend in my mind um i feel lucky just that i've been able to stage a race car with him a couple times in my career um, I just think that's the coolest, coolest thing. The coolest picture I've ever seen ever in my entire life is a picture of Gary Stinnett sitting under the tower at Vandermeer Speedway with a full crowd right before he wins a big race. And I'm like, that is like who I want to be in life. That's the dude right there. Um, and at the time, I think like back in the earlier days, he was running super comp and super gas. And I'm like, that's where I want to be. That's that's the spot right there. Like Gary Stinnett is the guy. I think he's like one of the most calculated individuals I've ever seen or talked to in my life. Um, probably to a level that I don't even aspire, even though I aspire to be everything that he is. Um, the amount of calculation that he does, that he puts into his racing, just blows my mind. And growing up watching him race, it seemed like every Division Five race that we went to, he would win in something. And it was like, how can somebody be that good? I don't, like, I don't comprehend that. Um, so he was always one of the guys that I looked up to. Um, that's really the biggest one that comes to mind. I've, I've raced under the wing of, of the Moore family, Kevin and Kelly Moore and Sam Moore. Um, I think Kevin, Kelly, and Sam are some of the greatest people in the world. They're the most genuine, uh, kind, thoughtful people that you will ever meet in this world and they've had a ton of success. I think Kevin was the division five super gas champ three years in a row. Um, and when, when he starts talking, I shut up. Like I listen to everything he says and they have a little bit different of a way of going about things. So, you know, we've always been like their travel buddies when, when we go places, it was always the Whitfields and the Moors that were traveling together. So a lot of what I learned and, and just when I think of, Kevin, especially as a racer, he's got this demeanor where everything is just so calm and cool and like, it's, it's almost serene. Like just being around him, I feel calmer because he's just got that attitude no matter the situation. It doesn't matter if it's first round or, or a final round, just the way that he approaches everything. Um, maybe in his mind, things are going crazy. I know that when I try to look calm and cool on the outside, my mind is a dumpster fire. Um, I don't see that in Kevin. He's just like, I've got a plan. This is how it's going to go. If it's good enough, it's good enough. And if it's not, we'll be better next time. Um, so I've taken a lot of the things that I've seen from him and, and Kelly and Sam and a lot of their wisdoms and the way they go about life and racing, tried to take as much of that and put it into our racing as much as I can. No, it's, uh, it's, from what I know, obviously of Gary, from what I know of Kevin, from what I know of you, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. Like I, because I, I feel like I, I like to think of myself as a cerebral racer. Like I, I think my approach is that, and I see the same in you. There is no racer that approaches that side of it the way that Gary Stinnett does. Like that's that cerebral. It's if I'm a ten on the scale of one to hundred, Gary's like a ninety-five. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not close. And I think, I don't know Kevin, obviously near as well as you do. Um, I feel like that's there and he does a much better job of, I don't want to say hiding it, but just like 
it's always Joe Cool, even Keel, but you can tell that the gears are turning behind the scenes. You know, what I mean, there is a ton of obviously preparation and thought that goes into doing what they do. So I mm-hmm. I can see the the influences of both of them in in, in what you do. Um, and along those lines too, I I, I don't want to um, take this the route of a, an infomercial by any means, but you talk about the the idea of growing, you know, as a racer and I think by now I would be very familiar with your story, but how I first got to know you was through This Is Bracket Racing League. You've been a member now for three years or so. Um, Our open enrollment actually starts, well, when most people hear this, we'll say today, we'll say Friday, uh, May 29th, um, we'll be open for the next week. Like just briefly, a racer of your caliber, I mean, obviously now you're as accomplished as literally probably anyone in the country, three years ago you were just as good you just weren't as nationally recognized i would say what was the deciding factor for someone like yourself that i don't think you're going to come into elite and we're going to tell you anything that you don't necessarily know right i mean you're very accomplished what was the driving force behind even joining in the first place i think it's kind of the idea of like you don't know what you don't know and it it kind of goes back to what i talked about earlier was that going to like we started going to big bracket races we started going to races that were bigger on a scale as far as like payouts and the amount of racers that were there and i was still looking around seeing guys doing things that i didn't understand um and i wanted to open up myself to new resources i wanted to know like what don't i know that these guys know because if they know something they're using that to their advantage and they've got an edge on me so when I got into this as bracket race and elite, I'm not sure what my expectation was. I was just like pretty much a sponge, like whatever you give me, I'll take it. Um, and that was kind of my attitude going in is that, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of advice or what kind of learning is thrown at me. I'm going to take it in and I'll use what, what works for me. Um, and if I can get inside the minds of other accomplished racers, and there are a bunch of them in this is bracket race and elite, if I can get inside their minds and, and figure out how they piece together this part of their operation or they, they view this part of their operation, um, that's all going to benefit me. And it kind of came down to like, without this is bracket race and elite, I'm missing an important tool on my tool belt to go racing because there's other racers that have this tool in their tool belt. And if they've got that and I don't, then they've got the leg up on me. So that was a lot of the motivation, um, and I have learned a ton. And going back to the you don't know what you don't know, um, I always thought that I had a pretty strong mental game. Um, And then we do things like the accelerator program with Dr. Tammy, and she's throwing stuff at me, like making me rethink things in, in ways that I've never thought of things or making me approach things different or practicing in different ways that like a strong mental game got even stronger. And I don't think there's any level of, of racer that's too good to be in this is bracket race and elite. Like you might think that you know all that you need to know to get by, or you know all there is to know, um, but you don't know that. You don't know what you don't know. And you need to get into the group to figure out, you know, what are these other guys doing? What One of the, one of the smallest little tidbits that I picked up um, from one of the interviews um, was um, – from Troy Coughlin Jr., the interview with him, where he said, like, if I'm if I'm getting a little nervous or something, like I like to practice little self-awareness techniques. And like I'll sit there and I'll think about it and I'll wiggle my toes. 
and I'll just think about that. And it pulls me out of the situation that's either causing me stress or anxiety or whatever. Like it just takes me out of the moment for a little bit. And, and it kind of gives me that relief. Well, now I'm sitting there in my race car, wiggling my toes, thinking about that rather than getting nervous um, about the guy that I'm about to race. And it's just little tidbits like that, that even when you don't expect it or just tiny little things that you can pick up and implement into your racing. That's what this is bracket racing elite has. And like I said, I don't feel like there's any racer that's too good that you can't learn something from what's going on inside of this group. Yeah, I agree. First off, TJ, like I don't think he gets near enough credit. That dude is so grounded and insightful. Like I don't I never have a conversation with him where I don't walk away going, damn, I never thought about it like that, right? And and Dr. Tammy, like she's so freaking good at what she does and, and such a huge asset to it to us with an elite. That's uh that's good stuff. All right. So I feel like, and I guess we're all um, like this to some extent, like I feel like as accomplished as you are, there is still this overwhelming drive and motivation. So I'm curious, what are you striving for? Like what is next on the bucket list when you I don't I know that's a long way away yet, but when you stop doing this, what do you want to be able to look back and say, I'd check this off the list like what's what's next for you um i I don't want to limit myself in anything so i want to say complete world domination um (laughs) love it one of the the things that um like the type of racer that i aspire to be is that i want to do it in both arenas i want to do it in the nhra i want to do it on the bracket racing world side i think there's guys that specialize in nhra and they have legendary careers and they'll be considered one of the greatest of all time to do NHRA. There's guys that are the same way in bracket racing where they will forever be known as one of the best bracket racers in the world. Um, I want to be one of the guys that goes above that a little bit. And when they say the name Chris, they know, first of all, that you're talking about Chris Whitfield. You don't even have to say Chris. They just know. Like you say, Peter, you know who I'm talking about. You say, Scotty, you know who I'm talking about. Um, I've got a long, long ways to go to get there, but I do want to be one of those guys that sort of transcends either the bracket racing world or the NHRA world and can be the best of both. So if I could win an NHRA national championship in super comp or super gas in the same year that I win a million dollar race, that's what I'm going for. Like, I don't, I don't have any limits to it. No matter where I'm at, no matter who I'm racing, no matter what kind of racing it is. I want everyone there to know that I've got a shot to win. Um, and that sounds ambitious. That's, that's it's like, like I said, I'm not going to limit myself with anything. So um, I feel like um, there's ways that I can definitely get better. I'd love to upgrade the equipment in a lot of ways. I'm still driving a Roadster that was built in 1994. Um, our newest dragster is a 2004. So that's, we're 16 years old on, on the newest equipment that we have. My dad's car is from 1997. Um, I want to be able to go to some of these gunfights and, and have the best gun there. Right now, I don't feel like we're there. So I feel like there's a lot of room to improve there um, and, and in a lot of other areas too um, that I want to improve in to get to that level. I know that I'm going to have to improve in. Um, but ultimately, that is the goal is to not just be an NHRA racer, not just be the bracket racer. And if you are those things, that's fine. No disrespect at all. Like I said, there are legendary racers who only bracket race or who only NHRA race um, and seldom do both. But I do want to be one of those guys that um, 
in, in any arena can be one of the best at the racetrack. Well, you've always kind of prided yourself on being that Swiss Army knife, right? As a driver, I mean, you don't win four track championships in one year unless you're capable of doing multiple things. To that point, and Kevin McKenna and I talked about this on one of our recent, you know, Way Back Wednesday discussions. When I was coming up, you know, and I feel like a relic when I say that, but there was, there was no doubt. It was like Scotty and Edmund and, and Peter. They just won everything that they went to. It didn't matter top ball, bottom ball, pro tree, full tree, quarter mile, eighth mile. Like they just did it all. And um, I mean, case whatever, we could go through the, the list of accomplishments there. And there are racers over the years, like Sherman Adcox won the million. He's won multiple national championships. I guess Ray Ray, even in, in more recent times, uh, LaBoose Jr., what he does on both sides. But that driver seems to be more of a rarity today than it was 10 certainly 20 years ago like i like everything in life it feels like we've gotten more specialized you know and, and for the most part the guys that 90 race let's say exclusively like they're really good at that and they just don't do much else i think they would do fine bracket racing if they poured the energy into that but don't typically uh, and and then you take the same thing you know you bracket racers you take like um take the the three or four guys that have probably had the best seasons for the last few years. It's Johnny Zell, it's Gage Birch, Dadis, um, another one just came to mind that I'm blanking on, Peeps, right? And they don't really go NHRA racing at all, right? I think, especially a couple of those, like I think their driving style would be so suited to NHRA racing if they ever just got interested in doing it or could financially justify it. But I, what you said resonates with me because I, I think along the same lines. I'm like, man, if you check those boxes, like that's, that's what I'd always envisioned. It's just, uh, I guess maybe on, on my end, it's refreshing to hear that because I don't feel like many people think that way anymore. Well, and I think there's some geographics that go into it too, because if, if you're out East and you're surrounded by 10 and $20,000 to win races, why would you ever go NHRA race? It just makes no sense. Why would you go to the racetrack to lose money? Because that's a lot of what happens. Out West, we kind of get whatever whatever's going on at the racetrack that weekend, that's what we do. So if the NHRA is in town, we're going index racing. If there's a bracket race, we're going to the bracket race. So we get exposed to, I guess, the, the two arenas of racing a little bit more, I would say. The choice is always there all around the country, I think. But like I said, it's hard to justify in different parts when there's an abundance of other options. But for us, we don't have that abundance. So, you know, we go do what we can do and make the best of it. All right. Last thing I wanted to touch on before we go, and I probably should have started this earlier. I saw that, that Manny Souza had made a, a comment earlier in regards to your, to your track championships at, at Denver about that's probably not the easiest place to race at. Forget the competition just because of the, the unique nature that is Vandermeer as a racer that has always avoided that place like the plague. Like I've never, I've never raced at Vandermeer and, and I'm just honestly intimidated by it. Right how how unique is it how difficult is it to to have any idea what you're running there right how much does things swing compared to say what i would be used to at sea level 95 percent of the time and then two-part question how has that experience benefited you as you have ventured out i think um for one, one thing that me and my dad always talk about is that if you can make a race car run at Bandemir Speedway, you've got to set up for any other racetrack in the country. And it makes any other racetrack in the country makes tuning just feel easy because Bandemir Speedway is like its own complete 
like monster. Um, and if you're coming from sea level up to abandonment speedway, you're looking at carburetor, torque converter, four link. I mean, literally every piece of the car almost needs to be specialized for Vandermeer Speedway because there's no air up here. So your suspension doesn't work the way you want it to because say if you have a 1200 horsepower motor that you're bringing up here, realistically, you're now down to about 900 horsepower. So the comfort range of your car, torque converter wise, jetting wise, all that stuff is just out the window. Like you're starting from scratch. Um, lucky for us, like we've kind of found a setup that is good enough at Vandermeer Speedway. And that setup that's good enough here turns into killer at sea level. Um, and then kind of to the part of the question of like, how does that affect the racing outside of Vandermeer? Like when we go to all these different racetracks in the division, um, all of a sudden my car is way better than I'm used to it being because like the Topeka double, for example, um, across 12 or so runs, I don't think I changed the number in my box more than a couple hundreds across the entire weekend. At Vandermeer Speedway, in the morning, you'll wake up and you're 7,000 foot of density altitude, right? Which is a number that's unheard of pretty much anywhere else. But that's good air. So you wake up at 7,000 Did you foot hear that? That was, me, that was me tapping the face of the weather station to, to make sure it was not broken, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> is, is something clogged? Yeah. No. 7,000 is pretty darn good. So you wake up at 7,000. You do a time run first thing in the morning. By the time you come up for a second time run a couple hours later, you're probably 8,000. So you're talking about what type of barometer are we looking at? What's that? What's the barometer? Like what are the first two 20, numbers? Uh, 20, 28, 27. Okay. Okay. I think. Yeah. Um, so by the time you come up for your second time run, you've gained 10,000 foot density altitude or 1,000 foot density altitude. So your car conceivably could change 500s ET from one time run to the next. Now we get to the heat of the day in the afternoon, we could be up 9,500, 10,000 foot density altitude. We just lost another 500s or more. So between three runs, a normal swing, a tenth of a second is not, not unheard of. Um, I've made time runs before where I come back to the trailer and I literally lost a tenth from three hours earlier. Kind of like something's broke. Hey, it shuts the car off. We tow the car back to the trailer. And as we're towing back through the pits, I'm looking at guys in their, in their trailers. They're pulling valve covers off, hood scoops are off, and we're all looking at each other like, did you break? Because I think I just broke, like, I, I think everyone's car just broke on this time run. And then you start bouncing around trailer to trailer, like, did you slow down? Did you slow down? Did you slow down? Yeah. You just slowed down a tenth, and nobody knows why. Um, welcome to Vandermeer Speedway. It's super frustrating. It's... Um, the curveballs, the, I mean, stuff just swings so much more. It's, it's almost like a vacation to go racing in other places just because the weather doesn't swing. And even when it swings, the cars don't move as much. And then don't get me started on the wind because we have swirling wind that comes from every direction. You got three flags all pointing different ways. Um, a wind from the east affects the car in the left lane different. Like it slows down the car in the left lane, but it's jumping over the wall. So it's making the car in the right lane go faster. Like we're all going to sound crazy at Vandermeer because we have all these theories that our cars have showed us, shown us what this type of wind does. And then we vocalize it and it's like, yeah, that dude's, he's, he's got a couple screws loose because that makes no sense at all. But I'm like, well, here's my time slip. Go ahead and make sense of it. You can't. Um, so it's it's a beautiful place. You got to go there. It's another bucket list item to check off. Um, but 
you know, after the race, you're going to want to get the heck out of there and go back down to a lower elevation. Um, but you know, it's, it's a cool place to call home. I like going race in other places. Um, you know, I live close enough. I can hear the race cars pretty much from, from this window right here next to me. That's how close we are. Um, you know, it's, it's, I feel lucky and privileged to be able to say that we've had a lot of success at Vandermeer Speedway. Um, it's getting to the point now where it's, it's more just frustrating. Like we've climbed the mountain 17 times and it's like, what are we trying to accomplish these days? Because, um, you know, speaking to this is bracket racing elite, I told all my friends about it. So now before when I was winning all these championships, what is Chris doing? How is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Well, I just go to this is bracket racing elite and they'll tell you. Well, I think 30 or some guys have, have been in the group at this point from, from Denver, and now they know. And the game has gotten that much harder. Like, I think it advanced racing at Vandermeer Speedway about five or ten years because now guys know what I'm doing. So now not only am I fighting the weather and the racetrack and all this, the competition just got a lot better as a whole at our racetrack. Um, so it's a tough place to race. And a lot of Division Five or a lot of – I want to say there's three or four division champions that maybe even more that started at Vandermeer Speedway in their careers in, in 2019. They were the champions um, because it, when you travel, it, it almost shoots like, it almost feels like shooting a fish in a barrel when you're trying to dial the car compared to what we're used to. Like it's, it's just downhill from, from our norm. So I think it helps us a little bit in that regard. I could see that. Like how, um, how fired up would you be if say like, Maybe the All-Stars is a bad example, but like if everybody had to come to your turf, like I'd imagine that would be a really, really confidence building experience, right? I think so. And I think kind of like you said with um, kind of on the conversation of like the bracket racers could do really well on the NHRA side and vice versa if they put the effort into it. Vandermeer Speedway is not an impossible place to race and you will get a good setup. There are some cars that really like to repeat at, at Vandermeer and mine's not one of them they're all over the place but there are some cars that really do like to repeat and you can race I mean we have really tight racing up here um with guys that have figured it out and I, I I've watched guys like Pete Biondo come up here and I look over and there's Pete Biondo's like what are you doing here dude and at the end of the weekend he's standing there holding the wally like good racers will figure this out and and they will adjust um but I would say as a whole, if if we were to have a big bracket race, say a spring fling comes to Denver or something like that, um, by the end of the weekend, I think guys will have a, have it figured out. They might have swapped a converter three or four times by then to get, get it figured out, but they will get it and the racing will be tight. If anything, it really levels the playing field because everybody's car sucks. So like, you know, the good drivers are going to do what they do and, you know, they're going to be the ones standing at the end of the day. Yeah, good stuff. Um, Chris, man, I, I, it's always a pleasure to, to catch up. Uh, I, I could sit and listen to you talk all day long. Like I, it, it resonates with me. I think you do an incredible job of not only um, representing yourself, but explaining where you're coming from. Um, congratulations again on an awesome 2019 incredible body of work. Best of luck going forward. Uh, really appreciate you coming on with us today. I do want to kind of... Uh, throw the stage over to you or, or give you the platform. I know that you've got, uh, nobody does this alone, even though it's a, you know, a individual sport, so to speak, just give you the, the stage, um, talk about the people you need to talk about, the people you need to thank while you, while you've got that. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, first off, this is Bracket Race and Elite. It's been a huge tool. Like I said, uh, tool in the tool belt for everything that we're doing. Um, I've I've created such a an awesome web of contacts throughout the entire United States that you know any track I go to, um, there's good people there that are willing to do whatever it takes um, to help me win a race, and that's invaluable. Um, I can't forget to thank my wife because I've done that before in front of about fifteen thousand people at the Milan Nationals. I forgot to thank her. That was terrible. So I love my wife and, and uh, her support means everything. Obviously my dad puts everything that he has. He's, he's essentially stopped racing so that he can put everything that he has into my racing. Um, so everything that you see me doing, he's either standing there on the starting line or at the trailer making everything work. Like without him, it just doesn't work. Um, obviously the support from my mom and my little brother, um, that means everything. If it weren't for them taking care of the home, supporting us, doing everything we can so that me and my dad can go racing, it wouldn't happen. Um, we've developed a pretty good marketing program just out of necessity when we have to drive so far and take off so much time to go racing. Um, the marketing side has been really, really important, really crucial to what we do just to be able to get to the races. So some of the partners I have, um, DMP awnings. DJ Safety's been there from the start. They give me a badass suit, like whenever I need one. It's it's so cool to feel professional when you're driving. And same with DMP. Uh, Dean and the guys up there have set us up with a sweet awning that makes us feel like professionals when we get that thing out. Um, Gothi Enterprises, Brett has stepped behind our operation and given us a CV drive shaft for the dragster, which is a totally cool piece. For the guys that are unfamiliar with that, you gotta check it out. It's the best, safest, thing you can put on a race car to protect yourself from drive shaft failure. Um, Premier Diversified Insurance, Nationwide Car Club, Renegade Race Fuels has stepped up huge for us. So wherever we go, you know, uh, we're pouring in uh, that Ratman uh, purple fuel. Um, and then Go Fast Energy, they've been a huge supporter of us. Um, they're a local company that does um, energy drinks. I've got one right here. I'm literally drinking one of those all day, every day. And um, also uh, Jeff Lambert at racesponsorships.net. I've teamed up with him to be an ambassador for his program to um, kind of help people learn the ropes of, of marketing because I know there's a lot of guys out there that are like me that without a little support, we're sitting at home watching other people go racing. And, and that's, um, that's tough to do. Like I said, that's what started a whole, our whole marketing program for the Whitfield Racing Team. Um, is just out of necessity. We want to go racing and we just need a little help. Um, so the tools that Jeff has provided in his program to get people on board with the marketing um, is, is uh, something I'm a huge advocate of. Um, and then last, Phantom Racing Graphics and Precision Specialties, they painted my car um, in a world where a lot of the dragsters are um, starting to look the same in my eyes. I don't want to bash anybody there, but like my car is pretty cool. Um, and, and I love the way it looks and, uh, those guys are super talented with their, with their painting abilities and their airbrush skills. So super proud to have them on board. Um, I think I got everybody. I think that was, I think that was the list. If I miss somebody, I'll, I'll lose sleep over it tonight. But, um, that was just, just everybody that's involved with my program. They know who they are. Um, I'm eternally grateful for everyone getting me to the point that I'm at. Awesome, man. Chris, thank you again. Like I say, best of luck as we begin to transition back into racing and at least some degree of, uh, of normalcy. And um, 
hopefully our paths cross soon. Hopefully, uh, if nothing else, I should see it in. So uh, best of luck between now and then, man. Yep, that'll be awesome. Hope to see you there. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Absolutely, man. Take care. Thanks, you too. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.